Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to our final week of our stay-at-home Sunday morning podcast. Thanks for sticking with us over the last year. I hope these podcasts have been fruitful for you. In future weeks, we would invite you to uh, to join us in person, to check out our live stream on our YouTube channel, or to catch the recorded version of the message the week after it's preached when it get, makes it up onto our website. Um, we love you. We certainly miss those of you who haven't been able to join us in person, and we want you to still feel a part of what is happening. And so uh, if you can't come and be with us in person, please join the live stream or stay in tune on our website. Um, and we look forward to, yeah, hopefully seeing you all soon. Anyhow, for this last week, we're going to be getting into chapter 12 of the book of Judges. Last week, we talked about the judge Jephthah. He was empowered by God's spirit to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. He won a great victory. He foolishly made a vow that resulted in him sacrificing his daughter. But hey, Israel won. And and it seems that we're being set up for another season of peace in Israel, right? Well, not so fast. We're about to revisit another one of the reoccurring themes in the book of Judges, and that's God's people fighting among themselves. Uh, I've commented before that in this part of Israel's history, the greatest enemy to God's people are God's people. Uh, In the book of Judges, the greatest enemies to Israel are their own brothers and sisters, their cousins. And today's story is just a textbook example of how bad things get when we allow tribal loyalties and infighting to overcome the commonality that we might otherwise share with our brothers and sisters in God's family. So, Judges chapter 12, uh, Jephthah leads the Gileadites to victory over the Ammonites, and at the beginning of chapter 12, the Ephraimite forces are called out, and they cross over to Zaphon, which is uh, in Gilead or Gadite territory, depending on which map you're looking at. They cross over the river to the east side to this town, and at the beginning of chapter 12, the Ephraimite forces are called out and they cross over the Jordan to the east side to a town called Zaphon. Now, maybe it'd be helpful if uh, we just do a quick discussion about maps. You know, sometimes we read the names of these tribal territories, and some of us might be thinking something like the 50 nifty United States, uh, but the reality is that Israel is really, really small. And, and so, I mean, so small that, you know, take the territory of the tribe of Manasseh, and really that territory is going to be more comparable to the size of Lewis County here in Washington State, the county immediately to our north. And, and if you take the tribal territory of Ephraim, really it's closer to the size of Callitz County, and Gad is more closely the size of Skamania County, which is just to the east of us. And then even geographically, those territories would be located somewhat the same. Uh, If you're not familiar with a map of Washington, Lewis County continues to the east about twice as wide as Callitz County is. And so if you just imagined the Jordan River going down through the middle of that, uh, that's sort of what it's like. The Jordan River went down through the middle of the tribe of Manassas territory, and so it was kind of split into east and west. Anyhow, the Ephraimite army crosses this Jordan River into Uh, the Gileadite territory of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan. And they say to Jephthah, they say, why did you go out to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? Now we're going to burn down your house over your head. So if you recall at the end of Gideon's victory, who was a judge a couple generations before this, there was a similar thing that happened. You know, in that story, it was again the Ephraimites who 
are kind of the ruling tribe in Israel. They came to Gideon after Gideon won victory over the Midianites. And they're like, why didn't you call us? And then the narrative said they, they vigorously opposed Gideon over that. And um, vigorously opposing, we don't know for sure what that means, but it's certainly a level or two below, you know, we're going to burn your house down over your head. I mean, these are death threats now, but we're seeing a repeat cycle again. Uh, only each time this cycle repeats, the story is getting a little bit darker. The picture of God's people is getting a little more evil, and their future is looking a little more bleak. Anyhow, Jephthah answers them. He says, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called to you, you didn't come to save me. So when I saw you weren't going to help, I took my own life into my hands. I crossed over to fight against the Ammonites. The Lord gave me victory. So why are you coming up to fight me today? So when Ephraim had come out a couple generations earlier and confronted uh, Gideon and said, hey, what what are you doing going to fight without us, similar to how they're doing now in this story, uh, if you recall, Gideon, out of humility, answers Ephraim, humbles himself before them, kind of schmoozes them a little bit, and avoids a conflict with Ephraim there. Jephthah is choosing a totally different strategy. Uh, instead of approaching his brother and the accusations that are coming in humility, he goes right at him. Verse 4 says, Jephthah called together the men of Gilead and they fought against Ephraim. Remember, these are this is the family of Israel, fighting the family of Israel. It says the Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. So, admittedly, the Ephraimites asked for this battle, right? They're the ones who marched out with an army. They're the ones who threatened Jephthah. And they're the ones who now are getting a lot more than they bargained for. Uh, But what did that last line say this conflict is really about? I I mean, initially, Ephraim comes and says, you didn't call us in the battle. But, But this line saying that this fight is over the fact that the Ephraimites are saying to the Gileadites, you're renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, this fight is really about one part of Israel looking at another part of Israel and saying to them, you have no part in us. You're renegades. You're traitors. You're deserters. You're out and we are in. Now, let's be honest. Does that maybe sound just a little bit like the modern church at times? You know, maybe one denomination looking at another saying, you have no part in us. Or preachers talking about other movements or other churches and criticizing them, saying, hey, they're deserters, they're apostates, they're not like us, and we are not like them. Which, I'll admit, it's, it's easy to feel this way, right? I mean, to fight feelings of moral superiority as we look at people around us. I know in my own heart, you know, as a pastor, if, if I know of a church around us in, a, in our community, hey, that church is a little bigger than the church that I'm working at, like, it's easy in my mind to say of them, hey, it's because they're just playing to the consumerist Christian crowd. And if I, you know, sacrificed my morals to play to consumer Christians like they did, then we would be twice that big. If a church is smaller, it's because the leader's a misfit. If a church is more conservative, it's because they're religious zealots. And if a church is more liberal than us, it's because they've watered down the gospels. You know, stories that I'll tell myself in my mind, trying to comfort myself and the own insecurities and trying to boost up my ego where it feels vulnerable. And I think we really have to make a conscious effort not to think this way, right? I mean, because in thinking that way, we are behaving just like this tribe of Ephraim, right? I mean, some people might say, well, we should think that way. It's important for us to have distinctions between us and all the Christians who are doing it wrong. 
the reality is, let's look at the scripture and let's see what did that kind of thinking, what did that kind of talk, how did that work out for Ephraim? And they're getting destroyed in battle by the Gileadites. Verse 5, it says the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. So remember, this large army has crossed over to the east side of the Jordan. And after that army gets whooped, the survivors of Ephraim, they've been destroyed in battle and they just want to get back across the river to their own homes, to their wives, and to their children. Uh, And yet the Gileadites, the winning party, has now seized any crossing points of the Jordan that would lead them back home. And the account says that whenever a survivor of Ephraim came to the river and said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would ask him, are you an Ephraimite? He would reply, no. I mean, you do not want to be on the east side of the Jordan as an Ephraimite right now, right? So like, no, I'm not an Ephraimite. Then they would say to them, all right, say Shibboleth. And if the person said Sibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce the word correctly, they would seize him and they would kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And so 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. So Ephraim crosses the river, says to Manasseh, you have no part in us, we have no part in you. Uh, <laughs> Manasseh agrees with them, you have no part in us, we have no part in you. The, and they begin to kill the Ephraimites. And, and uh, of course, Manasseh or the Gileadites end up being victorious over their cousins. And the Ephraimites are no longer a part of us, right? They're less than family. And now we're at a point where these Ephraimites are even less than human, right? And apparently the only reliable way that they can tell each other apart is by how they pronounce this one word, Shibboleth or Sibboleth. And the only difference is how they pronounce one word. I mean, I would be asking the question, wait, you can't tell us apart except for how we pronounce this one word? Are you sure that we're not all one? I mean, you said they have no part in us, but if the only difference between us is how we pronounce this word, are you sure we're not all one? And we can see, of course, in this sentiment, we see the root of, I mean, all crimes of, of prejudice throughout history, where the, hey, the only difference between us and them is the, the shade of our skin, or the only difference is the shape of our eyes, and the only difference is language. I mean, the list goes on and on, but, but to where people would say to another people, you're out, we're in, we have nothing in common with each other, we are not the same. And again, I think the voice of of reason, the voice of reconciliation would speak into humanity in that place and would say, are you sure that we're not all one? Scripture speaks to these evil xenophobic sentiments. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says in chapter 3 that there is neither Jew nor Greek. We say that today, and it's not a controversial statement, but in that day, written to the people it was written to, uh, this, this was huge. He says there's no slave nor free. There's no male nor female. He says, you're all one in Jesus Christ. And what a tragedy it is when God's people allow their petty conflicts, allow their insecurities, allow their greed to undermine the gospel of his kingdom. It says God is no longer holding men's sins against them and that he is building a new kingdom made up of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He's making a kingdom where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. We understand that God's intent for the nation of Israel was always that it would be this tapestry nation that included people from every tribe and every tongue. And yet here we have the children of Israel, the biological children of Israel, 
murdering these would-be prisoners of war that offer no threat to them. They're just simply murdering them, saying they have no part in us. And these are the men who were beaten, had lost the war. They're just trying to turn tail and run home. And they're being caught and captured, and they're being identified as other, and then they're being murdered there on the banks of the Jordan River. We don't know what the split is between how many died in the battle between Gilead and Ephraim and how many were murdered trying to slink back across the river, but we know that the total of both of those instances is 42,000 people. And that number just really stood out to me. And so in going back and looking, I discovered that is the highest death total in any event for Israel's history, the highest death total that is offered to us thus far. And that death total is delivered at the hand of Israel. You think of the different plagues, the different times that in the wilderness where people perished under disobedience, and at times thousands died. But 42,000 is way above that number. And this is not an act of God. This is an act of hostility uh, where brother raises arm against brother and slaughters each other. And so here we have Jephthah who was raised up by God to be Israel's deliverer, and he ends up presiding over the largest slaughtering of Israel's people ever recorded up to this point. Jewish tradition believes that this violence came back on Jephthah's head. Uh, Verse 7, the closing story for Jephthah is that he led Israel for six years, and then Jephthah the Gileadite died, and he was buried in the towns of Gilead. A couple of things stand out there. I mean, one, six years isn't very long, but two, he's buried in the towns, plural. How can he be buried in more than one place at one time? And so some of the ancient oral traditions and the the sayings of the rabbis, they cited this verse and in it they justified the the oral tradition they had that that because God was so displeased with Jephthah's vow and sacrifice of his daughter and because God was so displeased with Jephthah's murdering of his, his brothers, that God caused Jephthah to die by some terrible wasting disease where his limbs rotted off of his body. So he'd be walking along and he'd slough an arm off here in this town. So they'd bury the arm in that town. And later on, he'd be moving along and he'd drop a leg over there in that town. They buried in that town. Eventually he died and was buried somewhere as well. It's such a disturbing image. I mean, especially when you consider this is the guy who God had plucked out of the most unlikely of circumstances and chosen to lead. I mean, mean, this is the guy who was meant to deliver his people and judge them in righteousness. Uh, This is the guy who was meant to point forward to the ultimate deliverer. And and while he does some of those things in, in measure, boy, he misses the mark all over the place. This is the guy who ends up burning his daughter in sacrifice to God in the, in the fashion of worshiping the false gods uh, that our God is committed to winning humanity back from. This is the guy who in the end presides over the largest slaughter of Israelites in Israel's history up to this point. And so it, it, instead of being who he was meant to be, he's just a shadow of who he had been created to be. Instead of of living for the Lord and living in righteousness as the judge God created him to be. He lived out of this place of bizarre religious pride. He lived out of this place of weird tribalistic nationalism. And he surrendered to the all too common demons of infighting and division that that have the stranglehold on the house of Israel in this generation. And the reality for us today is, is to consider the fact that those same powers, they still love to wring the necks of God's people. The powers of darkness that rejoice anytime there's infighting or there's room for spiritual pride in the body of Christ. You know, when we as a church, we fall prey to these same 
kinds of vices. We too become just a shadow of what we might be. And I think the best way to combat these tendencies is uh, to mindfully commit ourselves to, uh, to speak well of our brothers, to answer harsh words with humility, to extend mercy when it's in our power to judge harshly, and when we feel justified judging harshly, to extend mercy. And I think especially when it comes to our brothers and sisters in the family of God, especially when we're looking or we're reaching across congregational or denominational lines. You know, I really believe that when Jesus looks at the church of Longview and Kelso and the surrounding towns, I really believe that he sees just one church. And, and while we may worship in different locations and at different times uh, of the week, uh, I, God sees one church. And our brothers who are across the bridge singing songs that we would never sing or wearing clothes that we would never wear or championing Bible verses that we would just soon forget, uh, despite all of that, we are one in Christ. And if the church is meant to be what God created it to be, we need to live into that oneness. Not like Jephthah looking for reasons to divide ourselves and say to the others they have no part in us, we have no part in them, looking to raise ourselves up in violent defense of whatever these slights, perceived slights might be. Uh, We need to be looking for reasons to unite. We need to not be looking for reasons to criticize, but looking for reasons to encourage, to speak well of them, to be kingdom people. I just want to challenge you with a couple of practical things that I think you can do just to help fight against that so that we would not be like our spiritual ancestors. One is, I think you should take time to visit other churches, uh, you know, throughout the year. There's no reason to not take a Sunday off from renewal and just visit another church, especially if you have friends that attend another one. Go to church with them. Encourage them. Talk about how great it was. Find something to praise in the service that went really well or, or you know, compliment the pastor after they preached. That was great. Um, Encourage and compliment what other congregations are doing. And then I think beyond that, we have to be, we should be, really intentional about engaging in ministries and events that we can do together outside of our congregational lines. This next week, on July 4th, there's going to be a community-wide church service on, on Sunday morning at 1130 at Martin's Dock. We've got a number of local pastors who are putting together a worship team. A pastor from uh, Calvary Chapel in Kelso is going to be sharing a message. Um, it's a time for the church to come together as one. And I think a lot of times when we do events like this, it's easy to feel like this is a week to skip out on church. Uh, but I'm telling you, uh, I really hope that's not what you're going to do. I really hope that you will see an opportunity to join as one, as the church. Um, We get to gather as congregations all the time. It's few and far between that we have opportunities to gather as the church in our community. And this next Sunday is going to be one of those. And so uh, I really hope that uh, we'll all be there together, uh, encouraging each other and uh, being a blessing to one another uh, so that we can live and be who God's called us to be and not just a shadow of it. Uh, So Lord, we just thank you that you have called us to oneness. We thank you for the body of Christ in our community. We thank you for the congregations and the people who are different than we are. We believe that your church as a whole is much better off because of the diversity that you have called to yourself. And so would you help us to be people who encourage others, who are for others, who remember to pray for them and support them, and uh, people who are bridge builders and connectors and not those who would be dividing. Uh, When we're tempted to raise our hand or our 
our words against our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be quick to remind us that we are one with them, uh, that they are with us, and that uh, our destiny is a common destiny together. And so may it be a destiny of life and reconciliation. Um, Lead us in your ways and help us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.